Church for singing out about victory in Christ. As always, we give you a moment for silent prayer as we get ready to study the Word of God. We who are believers in Christ have the Spirit of God living in us, and we want to make sure that everything we do is in His power, especially in the intake phase of the Word. You don't want to miss this opportunity, so I'll give you a moment for silent prayer. If you have any 1 John 1 9 actions that you need to take, this would be the time for it. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our lot by your design to live in a world of ignorance. We only know so often what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch. As though all that existed was available in the physical realm to our our senses. Father, your enemy is whispering constantly that all there is is all that we can see. those who have been so co-opted by your enemy as to adopt that rationale. Don't whisper it, they shout it from the rooftops. They proclaim it defiantly and effectively in the classrooms of our godless system of child training in this country. And Father, we're in a constant need, as you well know, to have our thoughts renovated, our minds, the spirits of our minds transformed Father, we need you to open the eyes of our heart to see your riches and your power, glory of your inheritance for us who believe. As we open your word tonight, Father, that's what we want. We want you to transform our thinking, not just for the brief moments that we have together tonight, but through them for our life, for our walk with you. As we open our eyes and look at the world as you have described it and as we see it, Father, help us see beyond into the real need, an eternal walk with you through your Son. Help us be ministers of that gospel in any capacity that you desire to provide. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 36 tonight. Isaiah 36, perhaps the most popular title of any message I've ever given. Hezekiah, iconoclast. (laughs) One of the uh, helpful takeaways from Camperete this year was that I should explain my words better, especially to to a youthful audience. And I said, I don't see all the need for all that circumlocution. And, um, but I don't want to be redundant either or repeat myself or say the same thing multiple times, but sometimes you have to. And um, what is an iconoclast? I mentioned it two weeks ago. The iconoclast is a Latin word, and it means one who tears down idols, one who breaks idols. The word in Latin for breaking, which I don't know Latin, because why would I learn Latin? There's nothing biblical in Latin. There's people that read the Bible and talked about it in Latin. There's no Bible in Latin. But anyway, I'm not Roman Catholic, don't know Latin. But I know Greek, and Latin came, came in part from Greek, and so I, I get it. But uh, I, this is the word, iconoclast. Icon is the idol to break that word, whatever the verb is, clato or whatever. I don't know Latin. 
But that's the word iconoclast, one who breaks down idols. And I want to do a little bit of a character sketch tonight as we continue with Rob Shaka's comments to the men of Judah. And I hope you remember, we're in this life-defining moment of one of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament, King Hezekiah, great-great-great-grandson of King David, named in the list of kings as one like his father David and therefore unlike most of the other kings of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is the, the defining, trying moment of his life where he had the crisis that a king faces, the ultimate crisis. On the chessboard of Judah, he was there with one rook as the king on the back row. He was there with one rook and a couple pawns and all of the entire Assyrian chessboard bearing down upon him. And it was way beyond checkmate for him when he hit his knees spread out the Rob Shaka's comments before God in prayer and begged God's mercy on his people. And then in this defining moment, which we're studying in Isaiah 36 and 37, he received victory because God did what he said he would do for covenant national Israel. He fought their battle for them outside the gates of Jerusalem, on the mountains of Israel, of his beloved land, as God said he would do, as we read in Isaiah 14. And so this significant signal strategic event of God's overwhelming disaster for the Assyrians is that moment in Hezekiah's life where he is tested to the maximum. It's a Red Sea sort of moment for him as a leader. And he obviously does the thing that we obviously need to do. He humbles himself before God and he asks God to have his own good way according to his good word. And this is the person we're studying when we read about Isaiah 36 and this man Hezekiah. So just by way of review, what happens is the delegation from the great kingdom of Assyria, the the juggernaut that's going to destroy them, shows up to speak to the delegation of the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the leader of this delegation from Assyria is called Rabshaka, the great cupbearer, the high cupbearer, the chief cupbearer for the Assyrian, perhaps prime minister. And we say Rob Shaka because that's what it looks like in English, but it'll be Rob Shaka in Hebrew if you're uh, really interested. We put accents on the first syllable. We would say David, and they would say Dawid. And that would be the difference in part between how you speak in English and Hebrew, is that second syllable, that last syllable get, usually gets the accent, unless something exciting is happening called a segalit. But anyway, let's read what Rob Shaka says, and then we'll get into his second speech. Rob Shaka said to the men of Israel that were the delegation, the southern kingdom, speaking for Hezekiah. So say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? Now, you can read about this uh, in almost an exact unison echo in 2 Kings 18, and 19, and then you can hear a similar story in Second uh, Chronicles 29 through 32. But we're reading it in Isaiah 36 here. What is this confidence that you have? The reason he asked the question is because Hezekiah has resisted, and he is not going to succumb to the demands and, and surrender to the, the northern, to the kingdom of Assyria. And that means that uh, it would be left to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, to just destroy everybody and to kill Hezekiah and, um, and take it all by force with an overwhelming um, firepower after a long siege. 
but they don't want to do a long siege. They just did that to the northern kingdom 20 years before, and they don't want to deal with all that. It took three years to crack Samaria between 725 and 722 BC. It took Shalmaneser, that was the king, two kings before Sennacherib in Assyria, it took him three years to crack open uh, the northern kingdom's capital city of Samaria. So Rabshakeh is going there to try to soften the target a little bit. What is this confidence you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. You have no strategy. You have no military force. You have nothing but empty words if you think you're going to survive this. Now, on whom do you rely that you've rebelled against me, says the king? On whom are you relying? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Now, this was the tendency. This is what the northern kingdom had done a generation before with King Hosea. He stopped paying tribute to Assyria because it was too expensive. He found a better deal. He found a discount card down and with So, king or Pharaoh of Egypt, and he decided he would be uh, So's um, subordinate, vassal king. And, and so that's part of what's happening is we know that if you're not relying on us because we're one of the two superpowers, you're going to Egypt. And so the Rabshaka is, he's throwing out, he's throwing darts to see what lands. So you, obviously you're relying on Egypt. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh, that's what he said. He didn't say Adonai. He says, Yahweh, our God. Remember, this man is a pagan of the ancient Near East. He believes in local deities for local towns. Every town has its own God. And the way they worship Baal is they call him Yahweh. That's what he thinks. So don't say you trust in, in Yahweh, your God. We just, he's going to say, we just mopped up all these countries that were trusting in their various town deities, their, their idols. So don't say you're going to be able to trust in your idol. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar, the correct altar in the temple? Isn't Hezekiah's great reforms outlined in 2 Chronicles chapters 29 and 30? Isn't Hezekiah's return to what we would call Yahwism, to the worship only of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only God who exists, the creator God, who rested on day seven after creating in six literal 24-hour days, so that his covenant people rest on day seven just like, his, just like he, the creator, did? Are, are, you, are you saying that... Um, that uh, you have to worship only in the place that he set up in his temple. That's, this is a summary from a pagan perspective of Hezekiah's wonderful back to God, back to Deuteronomy reforms that we might look at a little bit tonight. And he's saying, by doing this reform, you've worked against Yahweh. And we talked about it last time together. This is how the world works. They take the word of God from, a, from, from little pieces of it, and they connect it with their worldview of paganism and anti-God, and they try to make a case that ends up directly the opposite of what God's word would prescribe. The one thing you never do for Yahweh is make an idol. The one thing you never do is worship multiple gods. You remember the first, first four commandments in Exodus 20 to, to be the, the form, formation, the foundational law for this covenant-keeping people that would be in a, a, a contract between the Creator and them as a nation. The first four commandments are how they would treat God, and he doesn't want idols, no other gods, and certainly no idols, either of me or anything else, he says. You never want to worship other gods. You never want to make any idols, including calling one of them Yahweh. 
And then you would not take his name in vain and you would keep his Sabbath holy. Those are the four things in the Ten Commandments that you would do that were directly between you and God. And then the other six things about murder and respecting parents and not coveting and and adultery and these things and not bearing false witness, these are how you would treat other people in Israel for God's sake. But it's all serving God, but four of those are directly about God and six of those are about how you would treat people. And so this man speaking knows nothing about the worship of Yahweh. And if he does know something, then he's assuming that the people he's talking to don't know. So that's his reasoning. You just tore down all the worship centers. How can you say Yahweh's going to save you if you tore down all the worship centers? You got to have worship centers if you want the God to, 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 to deliver you. But you went and tore them all down. It is precisely, beloved, because Hezekiah tore down all the false worship centers. And I'll show you how, hopefully tonight. Hezekiah, iconoclast. It's because he tore down these centers of false worship and returned everyone to the worship of Yahweh in his nation as a theocracy, which they were that God delivered them. <laughs> so Satan's man, and he probably doesn't know he's Satan's man, understand. I don't think that Rabshakeh or, or Rabshakeh or Sennacherib have secret congress with Satan. I don't think that's what's going on. But they are certainly working for him, and they're worshiping false gods in a, in a three-ring circus that he is the ringmaster. So it's the opposite in verse 7. He's speaking exactly the opposite. So he takes the the data he sees and then he interprets it through his worldview. And that's the problem with the world. You can't borrow their reasoning. And here's, here's the interesting thing about this. If it's just mathematics, if it's just one plus one is three, as we all know. If it's just simple math, two plus two is five. Wait a second. No, we can still do real math. One plus one is two. So if it's, if it's just simple math, simple reasoning, understand logical reasoning, we can all spot this. But see, what happens in our culture, and I can speak to it, is it isn't just the propositions. Are we taking notes there? Because you've got an audience. I'm watching. Everybody's watching. You taking notes? I'll check your notes. Now, in the reasoning, it's simple to spot, but the culture around you doesn't present it as reasoning. They present it as emotion. It's get hold of your affections. It's through music, largely, culturally. I want to talk about cultural expression. Start with music. And the music, it isn't, I'm not listening to the words, it's just I like how it feels. It's, it's very largely emotive, the way the world gets hold of us. And we get built up into this dependency, this emotional dependency. Ever had a boyfriend, ladies, or girlfriend, gentlemen, that you had an emotional dependency upon that was unhealthy? Ever deal with something that was unhealthy and you had to say, well, I feel one way, but I think another way. And if I follow my thinking, I'm going to have to differ with my feelings. You ever have that experience where you had to say, thought says X and feel says Y and I have to do X. Everybody that's serving God and come up through puberty has to make that kind of consideration. We have to think that way. There's a right way to live this life. And so when the world has exactly the opposite answer, using some of God's words, like altar, like worship, like Yahweh. But they have the wrong answer. We need to be able to think it through. And I want you to notice that you're going to get there primarily through reasoning with what God said rather than feeling. I know of a religion that is a false religion that says wrong and evil and unthinkable satanic things about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they claim to follow and worship him. 
unthinkable, satanic, wicked, horrible things about the Lord Jesus Christ, but they claim to be named by his name, who will evangelize people for their false system by saying, just search your feelings to see if these things are true. George Lucas didn't come up with that saying in the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Just search your feelings to see if these things are true. How about let's reason this through? And what you're saying cannot be squared with what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ said about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, then you're going to have to choose between Paul and the false prophet. And it's a thought process. Oh, but my family is fully engorged in this thing. I know there's a feeling of familiarity and you want to be close to your family, but Jesus said he brought a sword. Oh, but I just love the way I feel when I'm around these people because they're so fun to be around. I know it's a great feeling, but there's a thought process that is higher and more important. And it has to do with your responsibilities and the truth of God's word. All right. In verse 8, now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, says Rabshakeh, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, uh, on your part, to set riders on them. If you have a larger military force, giving you a portion of his military force so that you will become uh, in, a, in a covenant relationship as a subordinate power. Understand, you just got recruited to command part of the, super, the, the superior military's forces. You can be one of my cavalry regiment commanders is basically what that offer amounts to. You can, I'll give you these troops and then you can do what I tell you to do with them, obviously. This is, well, not necessarily pastor because he could tell them you can have these horses and then he may not tell them what to do with them. No. See, if we can raise taxes, we will raise taxes in terms of gaining more power. If we can use your soldiers that way, we will. If we, if we decide we want to, need to. See, this is the, the, the question of Lord Acton and absolute power. So Hezekiah is up against it with a superior force that he can't possibly match. So what do you do when you're up against a superior force that you can't possibly match? What do you do? We go to God, which is what ultimately he does. Rabshacha says, then how can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up with Yahweh, have I now come up with Yahweh, without Yahweh's approval against the land to destroy it? Obviously, if I'm here, your sovereign creator, God, wants me to be here. Or the way he thinks, the, the den master of your particular little town of Judah and your little environs, your city-state God is letting me be right on your front door. We've surrounded, and it says in, um, in the Second Kings that he had um, encircled 80, uh, six, 46 cities in Judah, and now it was just down to Judah, to the, to the, the main capital. I obviously have God's approval to be here because I'm here. Ever have someone reason with you that way? I once saw a man ask God to strike him dead if he didn't want him to go through with the divorce. So that it became God's will with this idiotic, perverted fleece he threw. It was God's will for him to get a divorce if he didn't strike him dead. That is some sort of Christianized pagan presumption. That's just witchcraft. But we don't have a God who's magic. He's sovereign. And you can't cast spells like that. That's not how God works. Guess what? No, no lightning from heaven, just disobedience of God. Whom God said, whom God has joined together, Jesus says, let no man separate. 
God, I just, if you just want me to stay married, just tell me. Well, flip to Matthew 19 and read it. Because what it says there is, stay married. Or as I like to tell the young people that want to come to me and talk about getting married, if you want to do this, I will fully support you. And I think it's good for young people to do this. Because having babies and raising them is for young people. But if you do this, you should consider yourself stuck. Matthew 19, look it up. You're stuck. Love it. Live it. The world around you says, no, it's an option. It's temporary. It's as long. You're as stuck as you want to be. No, no, that's, that's middle school. That's this made-up boyfriend-girlfriend nonsense that the kids pretend they're married and then they practice divorces. Now, no, the biblical way is that you're actually married and it's a covenant between you and God for life. And it's his covenant. It's his institution. So, um, so anyway, have I, have I come, did, did God say that I could, could not come here and I'm here? Of course, God approves for me being here. And I believe you have a very similar thing to Exodus 14. What happened in Exodus 14? Y'all remember. Their back is against the Red Sea. There's nowhere for them to go. The biggest military in the world is going to kill them. And they call out to God and he kills them. God is stronger than Pharaoh's chariots. And that's what you have here is uh, all of the world can now look back on this event and see God's mighty works for his covenant people. Now, this is the great lie where we ended last time. The Lord Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Go up against this land, says Yahweh, and destroy it. And I mentioned a lot, a lot of this last time. Uh, when someone tells you, God told me, right? God told me something. Be real careful about just, you don't need to absorb their revelation that they're saying they got into your worldview or to your responsibility set, right? God told me that you should eat your lima beans or something. Yeah, you know, well, that's not how it works, mom and dad. God told you to train your children. God told your children to obey you and the Lord. So you telling them to eat their lima beans is a delegated authority from God that they eat their lima beans. That's, that's how that, it's not, it's not God told you understand where you're uh, inventing some sort of authority that you don't have through special revelation. Then Eliakim and Shevna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, the, the delegation from Hezekiah, the king, said, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, the Eastern Semite language. We're the Western Semites. We've got Hebrew. We say it a little differently. It sounds a little different. It's a cognate language, Portuguese and Spanish kind of differences. But different enough where the group won't understand as well if you speak in Aramaic. We can speak Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak with this in Judean and Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Let's keep this between the nobles. Let's keep this. We don't want the, the common folk worried, bothering about these kinds of geopolitical concerns. But Rab Shechah said... Has my master sent me only to your master and not to you and to you nobles to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? I'm for the common people, baby. He sent me to talk to the common people as well because they're doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you. Now, I don't know why the Bible has to say all these horrible things, just like I don't know why God has to let us continue in this difficult circumstance, in this world we live in. But that description is exactly what happens when the Assyrian army encircles your town and you can't get food or water for three years 
as he did to the northern kingdom. When they finally give up, they have to, and whatever tortures are coming, they have to submit to because it's gone too far. So what he does with that horrible, gross thing he says is threaten them with a, a siege, an encirclement where they can, they're going to starve to death and worse. Some of the worst things that happen in the Bible, some of the most horrific descriptions of, of, of human experience are in sieges. When there's a military force that is just not letting you have fresh water or, or, or food. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean. Now he's speaking their language as he has been. So now he's telling everyone. This reminds me of Goliath a little bit. He's always got, Goliath, if you read 1 Samuel 17, the best part of it, in my view, is the dialogue between David and Goliath, what they say to each other. The, the, the skull fracture event is, is almost a secondary, you know, afterthought, the way it's narrated by Samuel. The way it happens, Goliath has all this thing to say and everyone's scared of Goliath because he tells them they're all scared and they're all scared. And they're all in their tents, leaning on the pole, the tent pole, crying to themselves, you know, getting their armor all rusty with their tears because of his big words. And this is emotions. And this is the purpose of Rob Shaka. He's trying to appeal to their emotions. The little bit of Yahweh language thrown in and not a whole lot of biblical reasoning. And this is so helpful. It's such a helpful primer for us on how Satan's world system works through humans to, to attack us and get decisions that God doesn't want us to make. What does God want? He wants the Judahites to trust him, the Judeans to trust him. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Right? There's a lie. The great king is Yahweh. King of Israel ultimately is the one who gives the law and holds them accountable to it. And his vassal, his subordinate king, would be the house of David. But the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh. He calls him Yahweh there. The covenant name that God revealed himself to Moses with. I am that I am. Don't let this special Hebrew God that you worship deceive you. Or don't let Hezekiah make you trust in him, saying, the Lord or Yahweh will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do you know that when Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, after these events, Isaiah comes with an oracle to Hezekiah because Hezekiah sends and asks for Isaiah to weigh in on this, the prophet. And Isaiah says almost exactly what, almost exactly what Rav Shachah says not to listen to. He says, this army is not going to invade. They're not going to get through the walls. It's going to stop. It's not going to go forward. The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't you listen if the king says that. Don't you listen to him. Don't you let him try to make you trust in Yahweh. I don't know of many other places in the Bible where someone directly says, do not trust in Yahweh or do not let your leaders encourage you to trust in Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? Like where else in the Bible does this occur? It is Genesis 3. You can't trust in God's word because God is on it for, in, in it for his own ulterior motives and he's holding back what's good for you. 
That's how the serpent won in the garden. So what I mean when I say this is satanic is I see the fingerprints in the reasoning process. There's a deception that's going on here. I have no idea how Rob Shaha got his information to present this satanic message, but it's definitely the satanic message. You can't trust in God. So don't believe what he said. Do what I want you to do instead. That's the satanic ruse. It's always the attack. How does that work in your life? How does that satanic attack work in your life? God said there's things he wants, he wants for you. And he said there's things that he doesn't want for you to, to do. And the things that he wants for you, he calls commands. And things that he doesn't want for you, we could call them prohibitions or negative commands, like don't do that, but rather do this. Like we mentioned marriage before. I'm in a miserable situation. It'd be so easy to pull the ripcord and go ahead and let the judge nullify this. But God said, whom God has joined together, let no man separate. So God said, don't do this. He said, don't do this, but you feel like doing this. So, what's the, so what do I do? Well, God said, and he said it because he loves you. When God says something that he wants you to know or to do or to avoid, understand, take it to the bank. It's always because he loves you, and it's his self-revelation. So here's what happens. My sinful nature comes to my consciousness, not directly, but just with a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, of a temptation, a little bit of a lust feel that I want something that God has said no to. I don't want to do something God has definitely told me that I should do. What I do? I'm in a moment of challenge. And my contention, beloved, is that the math is always the math. And my feelings are variable and flexible and depends on whether I'm getting enough sleep or drinking enough water or hitting the gym or the things that I need to do. My feelings are very, very uh, malleable, but the math is the math. God said, and God is, and God loves, and God wants for me. So think, in other words, think it through. Think it through. And then it isn't about how I feel. It's, well, I want this. I feel like this. It's more about what God has said. And this is an application for you. God says uh, he's there, he loves you, he wants the best for you. Satan has a message that so often we misunderstand and we absorb that God is holding back that which we, we want because he's being mean to us or he doesn't love us or some other lie from the pit of hell. In verse 16, he continues, do not listen to Hezekiah, says Rab for thus says the king of Assyria, here's my offer and you're not going to get a better one. This is the showcase showdown, and you definitely want to go with the first showcase. Okay, this is what you want. Don't listen to Yahweh. He's got you all bundled up, and we're here in your territory because he let us come in here. Listen to what Sennacherib is offering. Make your peace with me and come out. Put your arms down. Come out. Don't make us do a siege and the whole, you know, disgusting siege. Just come out. It's going to be fine. Eat each one of you of your vine. And each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern. You've got your house set up. You've got your stuff. I'm not going to take that stuff from you. It's going to be fine. I think of Sam Rockwell here. I don't know if you know that actor. He's just, it's going to be, you're going you're gonna to love it. It's a sales pitch. It's a sales pitch. You do you. You just have your life. Just put your weapons down and, and vote to, to go with us. And here's what we've got for you. I'm going to come as the great deliverer on a white horse, great Sennacherib. I'm going to come and take you away. Come with me. You're going to love it. I'm going to take you away according to our Syrian geopolitical strategy, and I'm going to settle you. I'm going to resettle you in a land that's very much like this one, 
it'll be great. You're going to love it. You're going to love it how great it is. And I'm going to bring you to this other land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Now, who has enticed Israel in the past with a promise of a land that he would show them and settle them in that would be full of blessing? Milk and honey, I believe he said. Who says that? Yahweh. So who is the great king is very interesting. It's very awesome, the, the counterfeit that's going on here. Don't believe Yahweh, believe me. Now, for these people in a theocracy, it's really their geopolitical things about who you vote for really is about God or God's enemy. It really is. God's man Hezekiah is saying, worship Yahweh and him alone, and we'll trust in him. And there's this alternative that's being proposed. But I want you to notice that this offer of the Assyrian policy of taking you to another land, and it'll be great. You'll have new wine and a land of bread and vineyards. I'll, I'll, I'll bless you in this new land I'll show you. Very, it sounds very much like the Abrahamic covenant, the way it's stated. You can see how it'd be enticing. Now, here's the way the conservatives would hear this and report it. They'd say, Sennacherib threatens to conquer us and deport us and scatter us into foreign lands among the pagans. What Sennacherib says with the CNN version is, MSNBC version, but I repeat myself. He says, I'm going to bring you to this wonderful place and you won't even want your stuff that you had before because you'll have new stuff and I'm going to bless you. So it's interesting the way it's being presented, but he is telling the truth. I'm going to resettle you. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you. Why do I want to hang out here? Because all he's doing is misleading them. The whole point is he's lying to them. You beware that Hezekiah doesn't mislead you. Now, what evidence does he have that he's telling the truth that Hezekiah is lying? All his armies. We're here. You have to deal with the facts on the ground. We're here. And you've got this belief in Yahweh, whatever, but we're here. So what are you going to believe? Your faith in your whatever your territorial thing, or you're going to believe that we're here with overwhelming firepower? Interesting how God removes their evidence because the whole army gets destroyed. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you saying, Yahweh will deliver us or save us. Beware that Hezekiah doesn't mislead you. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand? Why don't you head downstairs? We'll talk later. I can wait. I'll wait until you're downstairs. Go report to Mrs. D. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has any one of the gods of these other countries? Now, what did he just do? He just said, your little Yahweh thing, your Yahwism is the same as the Molech thing and the thing they're doing up in Syria. All these countries we've conquered with all their local gods, we beat all their gods. Our God must be better than your God. And that's the pagan worldview of the time. That's the ancient New Eastern worldview, is that our made-up thing is better than your made-up thing if our army beats your army. So we've beaten all these armies. We've got all these, um, all these notches in our belt from all these gods we've defeated because we beat all these towns. And so where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? When, they have delivered, when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? It's a great question. 
They didn't. In fact, Samaria, who's Samaria? The northern kingdom of Israel. They're supposed to be worshiping only Yahweh and no one else, but they didn't. They were idolaters. And they, the best you could say is they syncretized. They made idols and called them Yahweh. They added the pagan worldview to what God said was for him alone. And he's not having that. And he destroyed them for it through the Assyrians. But look, what they, look at his, his reasoning process. This is the best man can do. He's got his senses. He's got his reason. He looks at history. He says, this is obviously what's happening. Without special revelation from God, we can't blame him. It's the best he can do. Might makes right. Obviously, our gods are more powerful, and so we're just going to steamroll you. But see, we don't drift through this life without revelation from God. He actually has spoken. And it's interesting, we're not going to play this local gods game and adopt that worldview because these people rest on day seven. These people worship the God who was there before he made anything. And everything that he made, he made by the word of his power. And he holds it all together by the word of his power. And it's the only God that really exists. So you have a very interesting showdown, which from a human perspective seems like a little backwater country with no military and no money and no way to win against the overwhelming odds of the great juggernaut. And actually, if God shows up for his little people, it's an overwhelming majority on their part. And that's what Hezekiah is going to ask for. Who among all the gods of these lands have devoured their land, sorry, delivered their land from my hand, and that Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? This is how the letters work out. Yod, hey, vav, hey, and then we've got these conjectured vowel points. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand? The great takeaway from the Rob Shaka's discussion, in my view, the great takeaway is that whatever the, whatever the human viewpoint rationale is, whatever the argument that's being proposed, you've got to look at it from the lens of God's revelation. What has God said about the topic? Because that's authoritative. And what man can do with his limited reasoning, as smart as we are, and his limited perception, as perceptive as we are, what we can do with that information is going to be far inferior a connection to reality compared to what God has actually said. And so you could see it's kind of silly the way he's thinking, but he really thinks this way. We, we steamrolled all these countries with made-up gods. Why do you think we won't steamroll you? Well, because ours isn't made up, is the, world, is the biblical worldview. Because we actually have a real God who's there. What's the only right response for Hezekiah to God in this circumstance? What's the, what's the attitude he must take with the Creator? What's the inner attitude that has to take over he has to trust God. It's faith. It's the baseline experiential relator to God for all human beings. It's trusting in him. And every test that you and I face is a test of our faith. Every single day, perhaps every moment of every day is a moment in which we need to be engaging our personal dependence and trust in our creator. Joel, we flipped. 2 Kings chapter 18. After introducing Hezekiah and his numbers, the summary of his life in verse 3 of 2 Kings 18 is that he did right in the sight of Yahweh. He did right in the sight of Yahweh. In fact, it's so exciting. Let's dig at it in a little bit in the next uh, four verses. It says in verse 3, and so this is 2 Kings 18, 
And so he did Hayashar, he did the right. This phrase is used a few dozen times in the Hebrew Bible to describe something that is appropriate, upright, straight, or desirable. It comes from a verb or is related to a verb that means to be smooth or straight or correct. It's the right thing. And it has to do with, and it certainly encompasses moral rectitude. He did what was right, but a knee in the eyes of Yahweh. But a knee. Your Bible might say in God's sight. It's fine. It's, a tra- it's an interpretation of the Hebrew idiom. The Hebrew idiom says in God's eyes. It's, it's a little different flavor. He did what was right in God's eyes, from God's perspective, from God's uh, way of looking. Like all that his father, David, had done. Wait a second. Everything David did wasn't right in God's eyes. But everything that was right in God's eyes that David did, David did do. And so this is a summary way of saying he's a man after God's own heart. And when David was right, he got it right. And so Hezekiah is like David in that respect. Now, this is very helpful for us because we want sinless perfection out of our heroes. And we can't get it unless our only hero is our only hero, who is Jesus. No one here is Jesus but Jesus. He's the only sinless human who ever lived. And so David is a picture of of great faith and marvelous testimony of the greatness of God. He's also a picture of what happens when you stop trusting in God or stop thinking of him. And when kings go out to war in the springtime, David was up in the top of the house watching a lady take a bath. And he lost, he lost all perspective for a long time. A long time he lost perspective. He even had to have a prophet who he could easily have had put to death as the king. He had to have a prophet come and tell him a story to get David thinking about something that was completely removed from him so that he could judge himself. He was so divorced from reality. And so David is a picture of success and failure. And we know this. But the summary in the scriptures is that David did what was right in God's eyes. Not all that David did was right, but the summary of David's life is that he generally served the Lord. And this is a great picture for believers throughout the ages because there is no one yet who has been resurrected except the Lord Jesus Christ who is the first fruits of resurrection. So we're all struggling with this sinful nature and David is one of our greatest uh, proverbs in terms of his failures. So he did everything, he did, he did what was right in God's eyes, did Hezekiah. And now I want to say verse 4 tells you of his outward actions. Look at these awesome outward actions. He removed the high places. He shattered the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah. That is the pole or tree, depending on how much time they had to improve it. It was a pole that would have been used to signify the female deity that was the consort goddess of the male god in their pantheon. Asherah would be Baal's female consort or El's, El's female consort. Baal was the child. And so you had this pagan view that there is a god and a goddess and offspring and there's this whole pantheon of gods. And, and one of the, the key visuals would be these poles, Vertical, upright poles. And there's, there's a lot of speculation. These things were generally made out of wood, so that's hard for archaeology because of the nature of disintegration of wood. What nature, what, what is the wood? And so the, the reigning theory is that they would just take a piece of wood and carve a face into it and say, there she is. That's the Asherah. But when you saw these poles as objects of worship, 
the iconoclast, the idol smasher, would come and tear them down. He'd cut these things down. So all these representative places where you know you're in a sacred shrine because we have the sacred shrine stuff. So that's where we're going to worship very often. The way the Canaanites worship was what's called the phallic cult. It was sex worship um, to, do, to bring sympathetic magic through uh, fertility from the God above watching the orgies t- taking place down below. All these high places in this Canaanite worship were destroyed by Hezekiah. He crushed to pieces the serpent of bronze, which Moses had made in Numbers 14, I believe. For until those days, the sons of Israel offering incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan, the the bronze. Nehushtan, the bronze thing, the bronze sculpture. They would say, have you worshipped at the bronze lately? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good good worship over there. This is the story of, of Moses being told by God to raise a serpent up on a pole, a bronze serpent, and if the people looked at it, they would be healed from the snake bites they'd received, portraying, as Jesus uh, shows us in John 3, the way Jesus would suffer for our sins, lifted up between heaven and earth. If we would just look to him, we would be healed. And they, so these idiots, these human beings, but we repeat ourselves, these, these broken vessels, the given God's law, they won't look at God's word, they won't think for a second about what God wants. Can't be brought to actually worship the real God who is there. They decided to start offering incense to this idol. It wasn't an idol when God told Moses to make it. It was, an, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of salvation. It wasn't an idol of a representative of a deity, but they still would offer incense to it. This is one of these places where we're like, really, this is one of the big, great, great face palms of all Old Testament scripture. They offered incense to God's illustration. Have you ever seen people take another one of God's illustrations and turn it to this religious uh, uh, mystical insanity that has nothing to do with the original intent? I, I have. Um, anyway, in verse 5, in the Lord, in Yahweh, God of Israel, he batach, he trusted. This is the inner attitude that produced those outer actions of tearing down the idols. Now, that last little piece in verse 4 summarizes um, 2 Corinthians chapters 29 and 30. Summarizes, sorry, 2 Chronicles 29 and 30. All that he did in his um, ministry, and I'll give you a hint, it isn't primarily tearing down idols. But in the Lord God he trusted, the God of Israel he trusted, and after him there was not anyone like him among all the kings of Judah, just as they were not before him difficult Hebrew there, but we think that's what that means. There was no one before him or after him quite like him in his faith. And what is the defining feature of Hezekiah's character? He trusted in Yahweh. Batah. Usually our word for faith in the Old Testament is aman. Well, half the time it's aman to uh, recognize the faithfulness or sturdiness of another, to recognize their faithfulness. This word means to repose your trust in the sense of the other being firm and stable and secure, and you become secured by your faith, so trusting in the other. It's a synonym for faith. So it's like the word faith versus the word trust. They're they're two sides of the same coin. Furthermore, he clung. He didn't just trust him and said, yeah, I trust the Lord no matter what. I'm going to trust the Lord no matter what. He clung to him, which means he was in his word. Means he was talking to him. Means he had an actual relationship with him. Davach, to cling. He did not turn aside after following him, for following after him. So he didn't stop the following of Yahweh in his 
life. And he kept his commandments. Shamar, to keep, to guard. He was careful to keep his mitzvot, his commandments, which Yahweh commanded Moses. So, see, he clings to the Lord because he's hung up on God's word, which he received from Moses. All the kings of Israel were supposed to copy at least the book of Deuteronomy. In order to be able to rule, they had to be able to read and write, and they had to be able to think and process and have memorized the word of God in his suzerain vassal treaty format in the book of Deuteronomy. Some would say that the, the requirement was to copy the entire five books of Moses, and that might be the case, but it was at least the book of Deuteronomy, which they, if they had, they would fully understand that this is the paradigm. This is what you're supposed to be as a king in Israel. Of course, you're supposed to cling to the Lord and, and keep all the commandments that he gave Moses. So this is a, a rare instance in the sad history of the, of the tapering down and the, the degradation of Judah. It's a wonderful instance of a king who actually got it right. And the trial of his life to demonstrate why he was the man to be the faithful king for Israel is the Sennacherib invasion. Amen. In, first, in 2 Kings 18, you have the summary of Hezekiah in verse 1 through 6, which we just did. You have the summary consequence, which says that God was with him and God blessed him, and he was successful militarily there in 2 Kings 18. The consequence of his faithfulness to God was God's blessing him in victory, and he expanded, actually, his kingdom. This is in 2 Kings 18 in direct contrast to the fall of the northern kingdom in chapter 17. The way this was prophetically arranged, the northern kingdom falls in 17, and the reason is because they're not faithful to Yahweh, they don't care about the Mosaic law, and they worship false gods. So the consequence is they fall. 2 Kings 18, the consequence of Hezekiah's faithfulness, the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him with... Um, did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from Watchtower to Fortified City. So there's your summary consequence in the life of Hezekiah as Second Kings presents it, and you get two chapters giving you greater detail in Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles twenty nine thirty. In nine through twelve of Second Kings eighteen, the writer retells you about the fall of the northern kingdom of Samaria. And then in 13 through 16, Hezekiah tries to appease the Assyrians. We had the summary that he rebelled against the king as a summary statement in verse 8. But here in verse 13, listen to the story. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Jerusalem and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. He gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and gave it all to the king of Assyria. This is Neville Chamberlain. This is appeasement. This is if we give them what they want, if we give Iran the bomb, they'll leave us alone and not use it on our... Uh, one ally in the Middle East. This is, the, this is the, the idea of appeasement. Now, who thinks it went well? Nobody. Because it doesn't go well because of the nature of power and sinful mankind. Well, they won't do it if we can talk them out of it. You can't talk them out of it. You can either have chess pieces that block them or you're going to lose. 
That's how it works. That's the wickedness of mankind. And that's the tragedy of the times in which we live. But we don't have to worry about that because we're trusting in God. The Rabshakeh comes next after this because they're not content. They want Hezekiah to surrender. And this is where Isaiah 36 kicks in. So what we saw beforehand is Hezekiah attempted appeasement, but it didn't work. The king of Assyria sent Tartan, Rob Saris, and Rob Shakah from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army of, to Jerusalem. They went up to, to, and came to Jerusalem, and when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the fuller's field. And so what we just read in Isaiah 36, this was the backstory, kind of the flashback to what was going on just before Rob Shaka gives his uh, challenging speech. And it's the same speech in chapter 36 of Isaiah. Now, nobody hopefully is in suspense about this. 185,000 Assyrians were killed by uh, one of God's angels um, after Hezekiah appeals to the Lord on behalf of Judah. He says, Lord, do you see what they're doing? They're blaspheming you. Will, you. will you not fight for us? And then God does. To give you the correct perspective on just exactly who Hezekiah is and what it is, he didn't just show up at the, at the, at the still that he found up in the mountains and with an axe and chop up the, the whiskey still. No, we're going to get rid of all of this. That's not exactly what happened uh, in how he tore down the idols. If you'll bear with me just for a second, in 2 Corinthians 29, I keep calling it Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 29, we understand how Hezekiah is an iconoclast. How does he tear down the idols? Second Chronicles 29.3 says, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. The beginning of Hezekiah's reign, let me summarize, is restoration of the worship of God according to the Mosaic law for a people that have rejected it and neglected it for generations. What he does is he goes after the priests and he consecrates them and then he calls for a cleaning out of the temple and a consecration of it and then a reestablishment of, uh, of the offerings, the Levitical offerings. And they have a major uh, event of offerings where Hezekiah basically reduxes what Solomon did to open the temple. He reopens the temple. Nobody's chopping down any idols yet. He goes to the priests who are supposed to lead the, the nation spiritually and he relaunches the worship of Yahweh and the reading of the Mosaic law. And the reason he's the great iconoclast is because he taught them the truth of God's word. He got the Levites to, to do their job again and teach the word. And the people went up to the high places according to the instructions of the Mosaic law, and they tore down the high places. It isn't just, as I had forethought, that Hezekiah just shows up and says, well, we've got to get rid of the idols. It is that he reinstituted the actual worship of God. And the great acts of Hezekiah, as described in Second Chronicles, are that he relaunched the worship of God in the temple. He, he restarted the, the, the sacrifices. He instituted Passover. They had a massive Passover. He invited both the northern and southern kingdoms to come worship together in the Passover. And a lot of the people up in the north laughed 
A lot of the Samaritan people, the people in Samaria, the northern cousins or, or brothers up there, they, they mocked and scorned, but a few from the various tribes in the north came down and they worshiped in this first major Passover uh, event that, that had happened in generations had been done, hundreds of years perhaps. And he, he reinstituted what God said to do. So understand the principle here in worldview and idolatry and if you want to reject what is to be rejected. See, Christianity, the faith of the scriptures, is not about simply taking out that which we reject. It's not just confessing our sins, right? Our life is lived through the affirmatives of God's instruction, of God's love, of God's life, of what he wants for us. And what, what Hezekiah did was he just reinstituted what he was told to do. And the obvious consequence of that is those that take it to heart say, we can't have this in the land. God's going to destroy us. We just read Leviticus 26. So we've got to go and remove these high places because God's going to kill us all. And that's exactly what happened. They removed the high places because Hezekiah had reinstituted the law. He had reinstituted the worship of God according to his instructions. And so, yes, he was involved in some intentional projects of removing the high places, but only after reinstituting the worship of God. The Christian life, much like what God was doing with Hezekiah back in those days, is not the removal of the negative as our priority. It is the embrace of the most wonderful thing that has ever happened or ever could happen to the human being. It is the embrace of our so great salvation and all the things that God has done and is doing through us. It is the embrace of these wonderful things that really make the alternatives, the things that you can get hold of if you won't walk by the Spirit, so undesirable. Our Father, we thank you for the message of Hezekiah, the one who tore down the idols, first of all, by reinstituting the worship of God. And Father, where there are conditions we need to set in our households, in our lives, in our own choices in the way we're walking with you, help us see that that's a wonderful model, that we would trust in you, that we would cling to you through what you've said in your word, that we would be about the affirmative things rather than focusing on the negative things because the negative things are part of it. But we're not here to just say no. We're here to say yes to you and walk with you in every respect. Father, there are family members and friends that are trapped in various patterns of lifestyle sin. There are people that are running from the truth about their sin. There are loved ones and family members in the body of Christ that are walking in darkness. They're carnal and, and disruptive and, and uh, discrediting of the gospel and how they live. And it's our prayer and our love for you and for them to bring them to a right mind, that they would see the riches of your grace, the inheritance of, uh, the, uh, that you provided among the saints, that they would see the wonderful riches that you've given us and, uh, and easily make that choice, that they'd rather have you, your son, the greatness of the walk by the Spirit, than those works of the flesh which destroy them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.